Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Y'all remember the first time that you saw the movie called The Princess Bride? Okay. Princess, yeah. Yeah, okay. I was going to ask any Princess Bride fans in the house, but you already gave yourselves away. Yeah. I love that movie, and um, lots of people love that movie, and probably all for the same reason. It's because of the performance of the best cinematic actor of all time. I'm speaking, of course, of Andre the Giant, right? Andre the Giant. Nobody loves the movie because Andre the Giant is a great actor. Everybody loves the movie because Andre the Giant is a horrible actor. But he's Andre the Giant, for crying out loud. He just stands around being Andre the Giant. And um, if you listen closely or turn on the subtitles, he says some very funny things during the movie. The truth is, we love the movie because it's just funny, funny, funny. It's in a genre all by itself. It's kind of quirky, kind of fairy taleish. At the same time, it uh, has some really adult themes, not in the sense of sexuality or those kinds of things, but I mean, it, it's, it's a satire in addressing some, some very real issues in adult life. And all of us get a little tired of the heaviness of the adult issues in life, and we love it when somebody can help us think about them and laugh about them at the same time. If you uh, love that movie, you may have loved it, though, for reasons other than like adult-level satire. You may have really just, you know, run into the funny and just stayed right there, and that's plenty of, that plenty of reason to love the movie. But the, the Princess Bride is one of those movies where everybody who's ever seen it has a favorite quote. And most of us who've seen it have seen it more than once, and because of that, we have several favorite quotes. And it becomes one of those movies that the more you watch it, the more you learn and kind of memorize. And because of that, you start saying out loud, your favorite lines as they come up. First time I saw this movie, I took a bunch of, uh, bunch of teenagers to Northwest Nazarene University for one of the college visit kind of weekends. And so they you know, went to serious classes and, and saw sporting events. And then the, 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 the height of the weekend was that everybody, the whole campus, going to sit down and watch the Princess Bride together. And I'd heard of The Princess Bride, but I'd never watched The Princess Bride. And all of the teens that I took were really excited and everybody on campus buzzing about, about the night of the movie. So we go into, uh, I can't remember the name of the building. It's the dome where, what's, what's the dome? Where they do like a uh, timeout. Okay, what, it's what those people said. Uh, that building, um, apparently nobody knows that it's a dome but me. Um, at any rate, we got in there, everybody's kind of buzzing, they're passing out popcorn, all of this stuff, and then the president of student government got up there and said, okay, uh, tonight we're going to watch The Princess Bride. <sighs> I mean, the place roared. And they said, there's just one rule, no quoting. I thought they were going to tear the place down. I mean, they're just you know, booing and throwing popcorn, and, and nobody followed the rules. It was fantastic, as everybody started reciting their favorite lines throughout the movie. And so that was my first exposure, and I found out um, why people loved it. I have a favorite line from the movie. Uh, it's probably a favorite line for some of you as well. Uh, in this scene, Mandy Patinkin's character, uh, Inigo Montoya, is having a conversation with Wallace Shawn's character, this guy named Vizzini, and after Vizzini has uttered for at least the hundredth time in the movie, inconceivable, Inigo Montoya looks at him and says, you keep saying that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. 
and I use that regularly when speaking to my family, and uh, it rattles around, makes a lot of laps inside my head whenever I'm on social media and I see somebody trying to um, win arguments by using big words. Oh, you keep saying that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Uh, It also came to mind this week as I was reading through the New Testament, the Bible's New Testament book called uh, The Acts of the Apostles. In this new year, uh, I want our church family to return to the book of Acts and live in it for a while as a church family. I'm sure that none of you remember this, but that's where I started as your pastor eight and a half years ago. My first Sunday, we cracked open the New Testament book of Acts, and we started working our way through it. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible because it shows us what happened when God came to live in his people. If you review the whole Bible from the Old Testament, the picture's painted of this God who is separate from creation, but who fell in love with creation and said, I want to come and take walks in creation with the, with the height of my creation, human beings. Human beings soon pushed themselves away from him and put some distance. And, and once again, it felt like God's up there and we're down here and never the twain shall meet. But God again and again and again throughout Old Testament history kept saying, um, I'd like to show up on the scene and have you recognize me. When you recognize me, I'd like for you to be drawn toward me. When you're drawn toward me, I'd like for us to then begin a very real and healthy and holy relationship. And I'd like for us to stay together, stick together and stay together. And that's just never been the real story of human history. We've just never stuck with God for very long. But the New Testament has this other picture of of God coming to live with his people. And it's the story that we just celebrated around Christmas of how God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. But can you imagine if you finally realized what God had been trying to do all of your life and all of the lives of your parents, grandparents, great, 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 all down through history? Could you imagine if you, if you realized finally that, that God's just been trying to have relationship with people, he's been trying to, to stick together with us, and you got it, and you realized that Jesus was the way that he did it, and you piled around with him for three years, and you, you served with him, and you served him, and you learned from him, and, and you loved him enough, he showed you that he loved you enough, that you'd let him correct you and, and change the way that you think. He'd trust you with ministry and send you out to do it without his supervision. And when you got back, he'd tell you, great job. I love hearing about how you guys do that. And then one day he says, I'm leaving. I submit that um, the worst day of the disciples' lives was the day that Jesus was crucified, and it, a close second to it was the day that he ascended into heaven. Because you see, in, the, in between those two days, there was a period of 40-some days. And in those 40 days, some people got their hopes back. Acts tells the story of what happens after that. And what happens after that is that God said he would no longer settle for living with his people. From here forward, he's going to live in his people. Our world's changing fast. And as we peer into the future, trying to figure out how to help that world to meet Jesus and to to experience his transforming love, I think it would be wise for us to take a look back at the early church, the very first people who ever got to experience God in them 
and see how they then began to orient themselves toward an unbelieving world and toward others who, sh who shared their faith. I also think that the uh, description of the early church in Acts doesn't in any way paint the picture as though, as though the early church got it absolutely 100% right. They were human beings like you and me. What were the odds that they'd get it all right? But they were a people who were filled with God's Holy Spirit, and because of it, they lived very differently. That's what I want us to revisit. Those are the real roots of the church of Jesus Christ. So I read to us the very beginning of the book just a few moments ago, Acts chapter 1, verses 1, for 11, uh, 1 through 11. And in that passage, there are two themes that end up making this. They're on this collision course, and eventually you'll see throughout the book, they, they, they make that collision in rather violent fashion at times. But um, you'll, you'll find, we will find as we explore this thing together, that that collision course, that, that sounds like a negative thing, Right? It's really two things that were always meant to be together, and they came together with a force that made them stick to one another. The first theme is this. It's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was an idea and a, and a phrase that was on the tips of the tongues of many Israelis for a very long time before Jesus showed up. It had been on the, on the tips of their tongues and in the forefront of their minds and of their conversations for a very long time because about 700, 750 years before Jesus showed up on the planet, prophets had promised a handful of things, including a kingdom kind of reality. A lot of people, however, as you can imagine, give up over the course of 700 years. You know, anything that you're hoping for that takes longer than a day or two, now that Amazon has promised us, you know, two-day delivery, it gets pretty hard to wait, right? Imagine if uh, there was a promise that was made to you that took 700 years. Oh, that's right, you'd be dead, and so would your kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, great-great-great-greats, right? So you can see how the hope had worn a little bit thin. And still it was the case that for some, this idea of the coming of the kingdom of God was a topic of conversation and of a very impassioned hope. The people of Israel loved the idea of God's Messiah. If you don't really understand what Messiah means, kind of think of it this way. They kind of viewed Messiah as a custom-designed person, custom-designed by God, who would make Israel great again. Can you see the hats and the t-shirts? Yeah. Yeah. Messiah was going to make Israel great again. Israel had once been great. They'd once been a regional power, an independent nation that was feared by her neighbors, a, a, a nation that other countries were jealous of because of her great wealth and prosperity. Israel had most favored nation status with God. We'll uh, take a look later at how they mis misunderstood that. They really confused that for only favored nation status. That was not the case. But many of their people over the 700 years or so had kind of had that hope and that excitement and that security beaten out of them. Their nation had begun to follow God uh, and his direction for human living. And because of it, they had prospered very greatly, both individually and collectively as a nation. But in their prosperity, just as God told them ahead of time, they grew arrogant enough to believe that they didn't really need God. 
They grew arrogant enough in their prosperity that they came to believe that they really didn't owe God anything. They had done, it was their work and their wisdom and their enterprise that had really brought about this great prosperity. And so they believed not only did they no longer need God, but that they didn't really owe Him anything, like worship, for example, or obedience, or gratitude. And so they began to sort of disregard Him. They went about life without God, separated from Him on purpose this time. They neglected worshiping Him. That just makes sense if you don't think you owe Him anything. And they began to explore other pathways to prosperity. They thought, now there's got to be some way other than following God. I mean, we did it once, right, with the work of our hands. Many of them, in fact, even went so far as to begin to redefine what it meant to be prosperous. Rather than looking at the promises that God had made to them, where he had said things like, I'll give you large families, I'll give you large flocks and herds, and, and oh yeah, I'll also give you a peace that comes from only from being obedient to me and knowing that you're pleasing me. He went on to talk about how they would, they would find a great pleasure uh, in life and a great harmony and a great peace among their people as, uh, as, as the poor were taken care of by their gracious giving, as orphans and widows were taken in and protected and loved. But he also taught them that they would find a certain sense of well-being that would come from practicing a morality that he defined in, in, um, in his law. He said, if you'll live according to these things, you will find that deep in your heart there is a peace that cannot be shaken. The people, however, began to redefine what it meant to be prosperous. They said, ah, those things don't sound like they make us that happy. We've got some other things that we think will make us happy. And so many of them came to believe that it really, that it was literally that that, that prosperity was really defined as being free to do absolutely whatever you want because you're a free man or you're a free woman. Whatever it takes to make me happy, regardless of what God thinks about it, regardless of what it does to my neighbors, that was the new definition of prosperity, and they started chasing it. And they became then, as you would guess, a deeply divided people because no two people can agree on what prosperity is if prosperity means I always get what I want. Should I preach about marriage at this point? <laughs> right? The big experiment wherein we find out that, oh no, the other person in this thing isn't completely dedicated to my every want, wish, hope, and dream. This nation became deeply divided because no two people, when deciding for themselves what is the ultimate good, what is the ultimate pleasure, no two can agree. And so it always makes for conflict. And as a result, their families were fractured, their society was fractured, and ultimately their government and their nation was fractured. Their nation ultimately crumbled. And it divided when 10 states decided to secede from the Union in their division and in it, those resulting tensions, they became sitting ducks for the military powers that surrounded them. So you got the picture. They started out with God. They followed him. It made them prosperous, happy, healthy, and holy. And they said, ah, we got this from here, God. And by the way, pipe down. You talk too much. 
You tell us things we don't want to hear. We have the new definition of happiness. We're going to chase it. And the whole thing began to crumble and come apart. So now they've got two countries. And after those two countries had been invaded repeatedly by foreign powers, suffering massive genocide and the complete destruction of their culture, they began to get a clue, it seems, and started a sort of rebuilding effort. And during that period of their uh, societal rebuilding, some people who were regarded as prophets, the mouthpieces of God, began to, to show up among them, and they began to talk about a hero who, it seemed, would make their country great again. At least, that's what they thought the prophets said. What the people thought the prophets were saying was that not only would this hero restore Israel to its place of former glory, but that he would blow right past that, kick this thing up several notches to the place that they literally became the top dog over the entire world. This imagined future existence in a position of power and dominance and wealth an exclusive relationship with the God who could secure it all for them, was commonly referred to by the people as living in the kingdom of God. That's what they meant when they said the kingdom of God. It's not at all what the prophets meant, however. But come on. Who are we? Prophets or common folks? We're common folks. And um, who wouldn't want the kingdom that definition, to come to pass as long as you got to be one of the insiders. That was the first theme in the passage that we read, the kingdom of God. Jesus had showed some mixed signs, admittedly, of being the hero leader that would usher in that kingdom of God. He, he had evidenced many of the Old Testament ancient prophets' leading list of indicators, but when people asked him straight up, are you this Messiah king, he either said no, or just said, stop talking. Do not mention that kind of thing to anybody else. And for for much of his public ministry, he just shut people down whenever they indicated anything like that. And a couple of times we read in the stories of the life of Jesus, the people actually said, okay, he he needs to want this and he doesn't want it bad enough, so we're going to want it for him. And they tried to seize him and actually make him into the king by sitting him down, putting a robe on him, playing some trumpets and, and throwing a crown on his head and forcing him into the conflict with the existing powers that were. But Jesus consistently said, no, 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 no. He wouldn't take the opportunity, he wouldn't take the title, he wouldn't take the position, he wouldn't take the power, he wouldn't take the responsibility of making all of the hopes of Israel for the kingdom of God as they understood it to come true. And yet, right before he was crucified, literally during the arrest and trial and interviews that happened right uh, in the day following, Jesus changed his tune let people start calling him king, and actually said things like, you said it. Hmm. He claimed that he was a king. He claimed that he was ushering in a kingdom of God, and that this kingdom would be so bulletproof that neither Rome nor hell itself, which frankly seemed real synonymous to those folks at the time, but neither Rome nor hell itself would stand a chance against the kingdom that he was ushering in. 
And so having the, the kind of groundswell of support earlier that kind of gone away because he wouldn't take the title, Jesus then without support says, oh, I'm the king and I'm bringing the kingdom. But then the common people and their religious leaders and their government leaders and the occupying foreign power all conspired to kill him. And if you've been around the church much, if you know anything about the life of Jesus, you know that they actually got the job done. So, kind of put yourself in that nation at that time. It kind of looked like the end of the King Jesus regime. And that uh, he wasn't really going to have anything to do with or any success in bringing about the kingdom of God. At the opening of the book of Acts, most of the people had disregarded Jesus and his talk about the kingdom. Both those things. Between the people who'd never believed in Jesus and the people who'd given up that the hero would ever come, and those people who had believed and had hoped and had been waiting and had believed that Jesus was him, by the time they got their hopes crushed, nearly everyone, by the opening of the book of Acts, had dismissed all the notion of Messiah and of kingdom of God. They now looked at those 700-year-old prophecies as though they were primitive foolishness. Second theme in the text that we read this morning is uh, the first one, kingdom of God. The second one is the Spirit of God, commonly referred to as the Holy Spirit. This theme, too, emerged from Israel's ancient, ancient past. During the period of their nation's history that was regarded somewhat similarly to, let's say, our colonial period, uh, an interesting idea had kind of arisen among the people. Uh, as I mentioned, Israel had believed that their nation had this, this exclusive access to relationship with the supreme God, and they, and they thought that that relationship status was supposed to secure for them prosperity and dominance. Now li listen, I'm going to say that again because it's important. They thought that relationship with God secures for a people prosperity and dominance over other human beings. Can you believe that any nation would actually believe that? Don't worry, I'm just talking about Israel, not in the United States. Hmm. They actually thought that having a relationship with God gave people the right to power, prosperity, and dominance over other human beings. And in order to, to continue keeping that exclusive deal with God on lockdown, an idea began to emerge that no humans would, would really be good enough to do that without God's help. And so the idea started to arise among the people that that's okay. God wants this even more than we do. So he's going to make sure that our leaders also get a pretty exclusive deal, a unique privilege that would equip them to lead in ways that were necessary to establish that early version of kingdom of God kind of thinking. And this equipping privilege was that the God with whom they had made this deal would actually send his own spirit down to earth to kind of settle upon or maybe even think of it this way, to sort of coat 
the leaders. And this, this God-spirit coding would then protect the leaders, and it would also give them, if they didn't have an automatic sense of what was wise and, and um, fitting in order to keep that great um, prosperity and dominance deal, that if they didn't know it automatically, that God's Holy Spirit would whisper it into their minds and into their hearts. It would be either automatic or immediate thereafter. This equipping privilege was that they got to have God on them. And that if God came on them, that he would just secure for them a paradise-style kind of life, but only for them and against and at the expense of everybody else in the world. Face it. If you believe in a God, there is no more ideal setup than for your leaders to be guaranteed a foolproof connection with God's wisdom so that they can use all of God's wisdom to get you good stuff. That's a pretty tight little philosophy that can get a lot of people jumping on board with it. Be honest. You'd take that deal if you could get it, wouldn't you? Holy Spirit is the second theme that emerges in the text that we read today. But both of these themes have been covered already in the Bible by the time we get to the book of Acts. They've been covered very thoroughly in the first four books of the New Testament, the four versions of the life of Jesus. So why did Luke, who wrote the book that we're going to be studying this year, why did Luke think that uh, his readers really needed to revisit those things? And especially since Jesus had just freshly gotten himself killed and put an end to any sensible person thinking that Jesus had anything to do with the kingdom of God or the spirit of God. Why on earth is Luke bringing this up again? And the answer to that question is that Luke and his friend Theophilus, Theophilus, by the way, somebody, somebody please have a baby and name the boy Theophilus, please. The name means friend of God. Isn't that what you want for your children? Somebody, I need a grand, I'm going on record. I need a grandchild named Theophilus, Okay. The answer to the question is that Luke and his friend Theophilus had come to believe that Israel completely misunderstood both the kingdom of God idea and the Holy Spirit idea. Luke and, and Theophilus correctly saw that these two things were the prominent themes in Jesus' preaching and teaching, but they understood that everybody else misunderstood what Jesus meant about them. They were absolutely convinced Israel was wrong. In fact, they were convinced that Jesus was convinced that nobody heard what he really was trying to say. And the first indication of this is that Jesus didn't stay dead. After he'd done all of this kingdom of God kind of teaching for three years and putting on displays of what it might actually be like, after giving many convincing proofs that he was Messiah before he was murdered, the people all just went, well, I guess the Jesus deal's over and took off. Jesus comes out of the grave and says, okay, class resumes. This time, listen close. And for 40 days, we are told, He talked to them about what the kingdom of God really, really means. He was resurrected from the dead, Luke said, and spent a month and a half 
making sure that he changed their minds about the kingdom and the spirit. And the first part of the book of Acts is written to make sure that you and I and whoever else will read it with the hope of connecting with God can get our minds changed too so that we don't start pursuing the things that are not true of the kingdom and trying to use the Holy Spirit to manipulate ourselves into an awesome life. Would you uh, like to learn about those two things, the kingdom of God and the Spirit of God, if in fact they really exist? I would. I mean, if there really is anything that in any way resembles a kingdom of God, wouldn't you like to know about it and how to get into it and how to make sure that you stay within it? I'll tell you that if there is anything like a kingdom of God in this world, and if there's any way for me to participate in it, I want to know how. I want in. If there's anything like a God spirit that comes down and has anything to do with human beings and tries to get with them and stick with them, I want in on that deal. I want the kingdom of God and I want the spirit of God. I'm a guy who has some deep and hungry wants And if those two things, kingdom of God and spirit of God, are available in any form, move them to the top of the list. Those are the things that I want more than anything else. Call it a a burning, possessive desire if you want. I'll take that. I want the kingdom of God. I want the spirit of God, don't you? I realize that for some, the answer is, I don't know. Because I don't know what, what it's really like. And I know for some others, the answer is, no, I want my kingdom. But for me, it's an instant and always yes. Give me that kingdom. Give me that spirit of God. That's what I want. Now, all of this is a bit of a setup for some significant disappointment. See, the the kingdom of God, as it's been understood by Israel, was a misinterpretation of what the ancient prophets were trying to convey. And the tight connection with the Holy Spirit had a different purpose than Israel had come to understand too. God's prophets got it correct, but nobody else understood it well. So how is it that this whole thing came off track from God making sure, speaking through human beings, that the big announcement came to the world? How did it get off track to where nobody seems to understand it? Well, the problem is that Israel as a whole, and you and I individually, have an inbred birth defect. It's true of every one of us. The birth defect is one of inflated self-importance and selfishness. Put simply, every single one of us wants a disproportionate amount of life's goodness to flow to us. We want to come our way. In fact, we feel like we're so entitled to this that if we don't get as much of the happiness as we want, we think we have suffered a great injustice and that God's responsible for that. We desire it so deeply and so thoroughly that we think if there really is a God who is good, he will invest his days and nights and work days and weekends and holidays trying to channel the goodness to us. And if he, over time, proves to not be a guy who's motivated by my every little moment of happiness, I will either stop believing in him or stop believing that he's really good. Because, I mean... If God's good and God exists, he wants me to be happy all the time, right? 
This year, 2020, we're going to take a look at the book of Acts. But we're not going to look for those promises of an ill-defined, inaccurate, false teaching about the kingdom of God. We're not going to look at the Holy Spirit as an enforcer of my blessedness. Instead, we're going to take a look at what happened as Jesus straightened out the thinking of the people who misunderstood what the kingdom of God and the Spirit of God are about. We're going to take a look at what happened when God came to live in His people instead of just with them. And we're going to, we're going to investigate a little bit what it might look like if God actually came and lived in you and me and us. I'm seeking that understanding. And I've got to tell you, I don't have it yet. I don't have a clear 2020 on this whole book of Acts thing. But that's why I'm going to spend this year seeking the face of God and opening my mind and heart to the Spirit of God as I immerse myself in the written Word of God each week. If there's a kingdom of God, I'm going to find out what it's really like. And I'm going to share it with you. And then I'm going to chase it hard. There is a spirit of God. I already know him. But I want to know him in his fullness. I want he and I to be so intertwined that you guys can't tell where he ends and I begin. That sounds mystical slash creepy, Cliff. Yep. That's exactly why I want him. Because I've had enough of man-made religion. Thanks. I'm full. Do you want these things? You want a kingdom of God? Not a kingdom of fill in your name? You can have one, I'm sure of it. Do you want the spirit of God? He won't give himself in part. If he comes... He comes in his fullness. If you do, I'll tell you how I'm going to end this service today. And it's not symbolic. I'm going to go kneel at the altar. Not because I want you guys to see me kneeling at the altar. But because I need to quit looking at you for a little bit. And seek his face. And I'd invite you, if you want those things too, to come and and kneel at this altar. If you can. If you can't, trust me, he'll meet you where you are. Church leaders, can I just be frank with you? Your church deserves leaders who want these things with everything they've got. And and I need you to want them alongside me. And so I would ask that at least the leaders in our church, however it is that you understand leadership, a board member, a small group leader, a Sunday school teacher, however it is that you understand Leadership, I'd I'd ask, I'd I'd beg you to come and begin to pray that if you don't want these things already, that the Lord will whet an appetite in you for these things. But this altar is not for leadership only. The altars have always been a place where all of God's people can come and experience all of God. So Ron's just going to play some soft music for a little bit, and I'm going to pray. And I invite you to do that as well.
whether you can get on your knees or not, how about you ask God to show you what his kingdom's really like so you can start seeking it instead of your selfishness? Why don't you ask him to introduce you really to his Holy Spirit and help you get acquainted with him without reservation so that instead of you trying to get him to do what pleases you, he can get you to do what pleases him. I have a sense that if God's people will come and really surrender to the Holy Spirit, his kingdom will come. So I'm going to seek it. As we bow before you this morning, I just have to admit that my heart has a tendency to go astray. It gets off track. I, I will repeatedly seek just whatever makes me happy. It's my default setting. When I remember you, when I catch glimpses of, of what you want, I, I can usually pretty quickly talk my heart back back into chasing you and what you want, but boy, as soon as I get distracted, I'm all into me. I ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your cleansing. I ask for you to heal my heart so it's not like that anymore. You described one man, just one in the entire Bible, as being a man after your own heart. I want that to be true of me and each of these people on either side of me. So don't just forgive me of my past. Don't just cleanse me of my present stains. Change me. Make me like you. Take the blinders off. Help me to see your kingdom instead of my selfish version of it. Would you teach us together this year, Lord? what it might look like if just one church today, here, now, in this country would quit chasing our own dreams and start pursuing yours? Would you show us what it, what it might look like if instead of using you like our personal servant, the God who gets me everything I want, we started coming to you and saying, what pleases you, Lord? I'm going to pray it every day until you show me. When you show me, show me every little way that my heart and my mind and my life differ from it so that I can repent, so I can turn away from those things and turn and face you. How about we take a few moments right now to give you the space and the time to do that?